on today's episode of Turning Season Podcast. You've never heard the Thanksgiving story as, okay, we lived here and then these people came here and we had to help them. You've never heard it that way. In writing Kipunamuk, we really wanted to create a way for any children, especially if they're Native, not to feel like they're the othered one. And any child, regardless of whether they're from recent immigrants or they've had family here who are settlers for several generations or whether they're Native, just to feel that it's an even keel story that tells the story of what happened. And that was a very specific rhetorical choice because race and ethnicity is a social construction. It doesn't exist unless it's in people's minds and then they behave off of that. So if we combat that social construction from an early age, then these children from all different backgrounds can relate to each other without being preceded basically racism. That's the voice of Alexis Bunton, who joined me for this episode along with Tony Perry. They are two of the co-authors with Danielle Greendeer of a new children's book titled Kipunamuk, Weachamun's Thanksgiving Story. It's a beautiful telling of the story that in the U.S. we commonly call the first Thanksgiving, when Wampanoag people on the east coast of what's now called the United States helped the pilgrims who had sailed from England in the year 1620 seeking religious freedom to survive the winter, grow food, and then they feasted together at harvest time the following year. I learned about this new book through Bioneers, a wonderful nonprofit organization and fantastic source for learning about what they call Breakthrough Solutions for Restoring People and Planet. Alexis Bunton co-directs the Bioneers Indigeneity Program, and Bioneers hosted a webinar where these three authors talked about writing Kipunamuk and the school curricula they designed to go along with it. To me, the great turning toward a life-sustaining society requires us to take a deep look at our history And especially for those of us without direct access to the wisdom of our indigenous ancestors, learning from more life-sustaining societies. As a mother of elementary school-aged children, I relate to the author's perspective that the stories we tell young children shape their views of themselves and the world around them. So we have an opportunity to participate in the shift in consciousness dimension of the Great Turning by sharing books like Kipunamuk with our children. A good portion of my conversation with Alexis and Tony is devoted to contemporary food issues, because this is how some of these historical, social, and economic dynamics are playing out in our moment in history. And Alexis has a lovely moment of reminding us to contextualize ourselves in a broader time span from her Alaska Native point of view. So I do want to give a couple of minutes here in the introduction to share some of the context of this conversation and this book. The book's full title, again, is Kipunamuk, Weachamun's Thanksgiving Story. Weachamun is the Wampanoag name for corn, and this story is told from the perspective of corn, who, with her sisters, beans and squash, witnesses the arrival of the newcomers and finds out that they are going hungry. She sends dreams to the First Peoples and encourages them to help the newcomers. 
Most of us in the U.S. were taught this story from the perspective of the pilgrims, who survived a harsh winter in a climate where they didn't know how to grow food, thanks to some, quote, friendly Indians. And then they invited the Indians to a feast at harvest time. For listeners outside the U.S. who might not be familiar with this holiday, generally the day is celebrated with a big Thanksgiving dinner, typically with traditional foods like turkey, mashed potatoes, cranberry sauce, and pumpkin pie. And many families also take this as a day to share some expressions of gratitude, volunteer or donate to charities, and a very great many also watch hours and hours of football. There's a whole lot about the history of colonization and Native American history that is left out of this story, the way it's usually told, from the theft, disease, and deaths that were happening around the time of the first Thanksgiving, to the genocide that followed across the continent. The so-called friendly Indians, who were from one of many Wampanoag tribes in the area at the time, are often portrayed as stereotypes, with children sometimes dressing up in school in stereotypical costumes to reenact the original feast. So this book is part of a larger cultural shift to tell a more accurate history, including the Native perspective, and including the more brutal parts of the history, although these are not explicitly included in this book for young kids. There's a shift going on toward recognizing and respecting the indigenous peoples of North America as living peoples and not just victims of the past, nor just as sometimes friendly people who faded into the background after helping the pilgrims. Since Thanksgiving is many Americans' main exposure to stories of Native peoples, it's a meaningful place to bring in more books and other forms of storytelling or expression by Native Americans and also for Native American children, as Alexis and Tony will speak to today in our conversation. So continue listening to hear how Alexis and Tony experienced the story of Thanksgiving growing up as Native children in U.S. schools, why they wrote Kipunamuk, ideas for decolonizing and indigenizing your own Thanksgiving celebration, and both the challenges and possibilities that are present today for reconnecting with our food. Be sure to visit the show notes at turningseason.com slash episode 23 for links to many more resources about decolonizing Thanksgiving, curriculum resources for elementary and high school, and of course, to get the children in your life or your local school a copy of the book. You're listening to Turning Season Podcast, your regular dose of active hope in the great turning, bringing you news and deep conversations about our adventure toward a life-honoring, life-sustaining way of being human on Earth. This show is for every one of you who's awake to our multiple crises, feels your love for life on Earth, and chooses to participate in cultivating ways of life we can believe in, making a life-honoring present even in the face of an uncertain future. I'm your host, Leilani Navar. I'm a facilitator of the work that reconnects, an acupuncturist and dream worker, and a believer in the power of conversation. This podcast is one way the great turning happens through me. Welcome and thank you for being here. I have two guests with me today, co-authors of Kipunamuk, Weachamun's Thanksgiving Story, which was released in August 2022. With me are Alexis Bunton and Tony Perry, 
who wrote the book along with co-author Danielle Greendeer and illustrator Gary Meaches Sr. Alexis Bunton is Yunangan and Yupik from Southwest Alaska in Bristol Bay. Her village is South Naknek. She co-directs the Bioneers Indigeneity Program. Alexis is an Alaska Native writer, media maker, consultant, and educator. Her first book, So How Long Have You Been Native? Life as an Alaska Native Tour Guide, was published in 2015 and won the Alaska Library Association Award for its originality and depth. Her writing has appeared in First American Art Magazine, Cultural Survival Quarterly, NMAI Magazine, and many academic journals. Her second picture book, What Your Ribbon Skirt Means to Me, Deb Holland's Historic Inauguration, will be published in 2023. Alexis lives in Monterey, California with her husband, her daughter, three dogs, a cat, and a lizard. And in her free time, she enjoys hiking, studying DNA, and creating cultural tours. Tony Perry is a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation, originally from Oklahoma, and now living in England with his wife and young children. Kipunamuk is his second children's book. His first book, Chula the Fox, brings 18th century Chickasaw history to life and is being adapted into a film. He works as a quality improvement manager in the National Health Service in England and volunteers with hospitals in Pakistan to improve health services. He loves history and enjoys spending time with his family and traveling. Tony has an undergraduate degree in comparative religion from Dartmouth College, a master's degree in public health from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and a master's degree in public policy from Birkbeck College, University of London. He's currently working on a sequel to Chula the Fox. Alexis and Tony, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I would love to jump in by getting to know each of you a little bit better through some of the open sentences from the work that reconnects. So this first one begins, some things I love about being alive on earth are, and you can finish that sentence however you like. Alexis, if you want to go first, and then Tony, some things I love about being alive on earth are. Oh my goodness. What a wonderful prompt for me. The things I love about being alive on earth are first, the feeling of love and interconnectedness, and then the ocean, because I always live on the Pacific Ocean, and being able to watch the birds and the wild animals in my neighborhood and feel connected to all of it. Beautiful. Thank you so much. How about you, Tony? Well, so good question. Um, I think some of the things I love most about being alive are uh, being able to find new places, explore, uh, you know, preferably up into the north and the Arctic is kind of where I lean most if ever I get a chance. Um, the other part of it is just spending time with my family and watching my children grow up. Uh, and I think the third part of it, uh, is really about, you know, being able to do something to make a difference in the world. So having a life that has some kind of meaning, uh, I think when there's meaning, then there's more joy in it. 
Mm-hmm. Beautifully said. Thank you. And the second question stretching us wide in both directions here is when I look around at what's happening in the world, what breaks my heart is? What breaks my heart is that children growing up around the world in industrialized and non-industrialized situations don't have a connection to the food they eat and understanding their relationship to nature and their responsibilities to it. And the second thing that breaks my heart is knowing climate science and where we're going and how we're extincting ourselves as a species and that human beings are causing the sixth greatest mass extinction in global history and that we've had the knowledge to stop this for over 40 years and especially um, in the late 90s and the 2000s when we knew what to do and yet we keep combusting as a society globally as human beings. Yeah, I hear you. I'm with you on all of that. Thank you, Alexis. Tony, what would you say? Yeah, when I look around the, uh, what's happening, I think what most breaks my heart is also two things. Um, for me is, is first off war, uh, which is striking close to home where I live now uh, and with my family uh, in, in Moldova, which is next to Ukraine. So seeing the threats of local war that uh, can end up spreading uh, further afield, and then of course recognizing that there's violence throughout the world, including in in places where this is not regularly reported. Uh, so that is one. Um, and then the other, I would say, is just the just seeing how much how increasingly difficult it is for people to be able to make ends meet uh, and provide support for their families. We've gone from uh, a world where, generally speaking, one person could actually earn enough to support a family, having a house and food and everything you know that the families need to now having oftentimes two people trying to work to do what one had before, uh, and seeing costs continue to rise uh, over time and that getting further and further out of reach. So uh, that absolutely breaks my heart and it makes me worry about what what the whole what the future holds. I'm with you on all of that, too. Thank you for articulating those. I want to bring up the three stories of our time in reply to that. This is a term of Joanna Macy's in a way that she introduces how the worldview that we each have and how we're looking at what's going on right now. And when she first was sharing the three stories, she would say that the primary and the first story was business as usual, which I think doesn't need a lot of explanation. We all kind of have a sense of how business as usual has been carrying on an industrial growth society and has us where we are now. And she would say that the second story is the great unraveling, which is the everything is falling apart story, sixth mass extinction and war and harder and harder to make ends meet. And I think that the great unraveling is uh, gaining momentum as a more primary story, as you both just spoke to. And I know as many listeners are feeling. So 
Both stories continue to play out, though. We know, as you were saying, Alexis, that we we haven't turned around from business as usual. And we continue to, as a society, we continue to cause the same harms of business as usual. But there's also a third story happening at the same time that is an option for a way to view this time as well, which is the time of the great turning and the story that is an adventure story with an uncertain ending and a lot of peril and a lot of beauty that we call the great turning and all the ways that we're shifting as humanity toward a more life-honoring and life-sustaining way of being here. So I wanted to name those, those three stories and hear from each of you a little bit about where you might find yourself in those three stories right now. And we'll segue into talking all about Kipunamuk, but if you want to include where you find your your work as writers within the three stories. I like that framework, actually. Um, so in terms of business as usual, I think that um, I think Kipunamuk is very much around changing changing that, right? So business as usual, as Alexis touched on, uh, was is is around the idea of people of kids thinking, well, my fruit and veg or my meat just comes from the store. And that's the end of the conversation and having no connection to uh, the fields that grow these crops and the hard work that's put in to make, to give them life and to sustain that life so that you can get as much food for your family as possible. That's been completely, I think, lost in at least developed parts of the world. Um, and so Kapanamuk, I think, uh, is designed to help change that narrative and give readers from the earliest of ages a recognition that we are part of a bigger system, uh, part of a bigger world, uh, that we have a role to play, but, but we are affected by uh, and benefit from um, the world around us, meaning not just other people as important as they are, but also nature uh, and to recognize that. And then in terms of unraveling, at least for me, uh, I think is around being able to change a story that's, that has taken that um, idea of connectedness for granted. Uh, and in other words, people just not, not even thinking about the fact that they have a bigger role to play, that it's thinking about what you know, the Thanksgiving story, at least that I grew up in school, is really about the idea of human triumph, uh, being able to start afresh and finding a new land, make a new home, succeed and prosper. That's the basic story that I grew up with. And it doesn't really hold anymore. I don't, I think that, um, American society, and I think you can expand this to other countries as well. I see it here in the UK to an extent. The ideals and beliefs and identities that held people together, I think, no longer apply, but there's not a clear answer to where people go. And so there is unrest, and I think that's compounded by some of the things we spoke earlier about you know, with the climate, uh, with war, with just general uncertainty. Uh, and so in a way, Kapanama, I think, comes in and helps create a new narrative, particularly in an American context, uh, around 
who we are as people, uh, recognizing and respecting each other uh, and, and the contributions that we make to each other, uh, as well as the world around us. And the unraveling part of that is really changing a narrative. For me, it's really about fundamentally changing the Thanksgiving story, which itself was created as a story to help unify people at a different time of disruption and division uh, and, and uncertainty. But and, and in many ways it did that, but at a cost to nature and frankly, indigenous peoples. And so those kind of where I would say it kind of helps in terms of creating a narrative to help structure some of the unraveling and move into the into the third phase. Uh, so maybe somewhere that we can look towards. Thanks, Tony. And on my part, I would say I look towards something that an elder told me many years ago, and I can only say it from an Alaska Native context because we've been double colonized, that we were here before the Russians came. We were here after the Russians left. We were here before the Americans came and we'll be here after the Americans left. And I think a lot of people are stuck in the here and now and they don't understand paradigm shifts and that things can shift to the better. And if you look at human beings, our species, we've made a huge impact on our environment and we are part of fixing it and helping it and stewarding it. We've gotten a little bit sidelined since the industrial revolution and the time of fossil fuels when coal was discovered to uh, fuel the combustible engine and everything blow up, blew up that was only less than 200 years ago the united states is just a little over 200 years old people think that the time we're living in is permanent but if you really look at it from a native perspective in terms of looking at uh your ancestors and your descendants moving forward. It's a really short period of time. And, and lots of things have happened in short periods of time, given our species existence. So I think that the um, coming forward into a better era where we help the planet and support it is really kind of more in tune with us as a species understanding nature and being a part of it and stewarding it naturally as a part of a way to survive. I think we're just in a little like kind of blip of an aberration right now. That's a great wider lens to look at because the three stories of our time are very much of our time of this aberrant couple hundred or maybe a few hundred more years. And one, one vision of the great turning is maybe that we're getting back on track. I so, so, but I'm an eternal optimist. So <laughs> I think we'll do it. Either we do it or we don't, or we perish. Well, yeah, yeah. we don't have much choice. If we're going to survive, mm -hmm. uh, we're in the middle of such a huge transition, of course, environmentally, but also socially and and culturally. Uh, the status quo is clearly not working and no one has really any clear I think that the answers are out there, but but it's about bringing people along and people aren't ready to go along. I think maybe it's because there's too much pain in the here and now uh, or too much uncertainty. I don't know. But uh, Alexis is right. We have to get there one way or another. 
So this this idea of what what people are ready for and shifting the narrative and zooming out leads me to want to ask you about this choice to write for very young children because this book is for kindergarten maybe to second or third grade age if I have that right tell me about the choice to write for young kids oh well that's a really easy one because Danielle our lead writer Tony and I we all had young kids of our own and we all went through the school system in America and experienced learning about Thanksgiving from the quote-unquote mainstream perspective and we were all native and it the mainstream perspective really um, othered us and made us feel like we weren't belonging in our own country. So we wanted to create a story that made all children feel like they were a part of it equally. And one of our rhetorical choices that we made was to tell the story from the perspective of a grandmother talking to her children and the historic story of the first Thanksgiving from the perspective of corn, Weachamun, who's in the title. And so, yeah, I'll leave it to Tony to go up next. Yeah, I uh, just as a bit of background to this. So, uh, you know, Alexis um, and Danielle both have spent years doing work trying to unpick this narrative and, and educate people about the true story of Thanksgiving and, and some of the harms that the current story has. Uh, and I learned about this through an interview that Alexis was giving uh, back around 2018, just after my book, Chula the Fox, was published. And the idea behind Chula the Fox was around trying to bring uh the history and the lives of our of my ancestors of my Chickasaw ancestors to life for Chickasaws today and of course uh the wider world as well so in essence to humanize uh my my ancestors in a way that other you know history books and such just don't do uh and so I had just published that uh and learned about how little I knew about Thanksgiving uh, and it just dawned on me at that point of, well, wait a minute, why don't we take this a step further? There's so much work that has to be done to kind of correct what people have assumed is true or is right. And why don't we create a new narrative? But in order to do that, you have to reach people before they've had the current narrative. Uh, and, and that's where having a picture book in particular came to mind. Uh, because, you know, having young children, you end up reading picture books over and over again. It's not like you read it once, generally speaking, and put it away. Uh, it's something that's read at, you know, in my, in my family anyway, it's been read at bedtime, and, and it's the same story over and over again. And it becomes a, a part of a child's life. Uh, and and that's, I think, what really resonated with me. Uh, so the idea of writing a picture book uh, with uh, Kipanama, it becomes a child's first exposure to Thanksgiving. I can certainly say that it was my children's first exposure to Thanksgiving. They don't understandably teach uh, the Thanksgiving narrative uh, in the UK. We do have a wider harvest festival here. Uh, which is right about now. And so it fits within that. But my children's version of Thanksgiving is more from what we have written. 
So it becomes a child's default narrative, but then it's also prompting questions for their parents, family, friends, and others. And so it supports those wider conversations about, well, what is wrong with the current Thanksgiving story, right? Um, and what do we need to do about it? So the idea of a picture book, I think it, it's a natural fit for what we were trying to do. Yeah, and it's so beautifully done. There's really a lot of seeds in there for young children as they read this book. I also have young children similar in age to yours. And the choice to tell it from the perspective of corn, I quite love because it's, of course, from neither the newcomers or the first people's perspective, but also like what you were speaking to early on, Alexis, about our connection to our food. And I love that there is the seed of possibility that dreams played a role in this, paying attention to the, to these other ways of knowing and ways of communicating that we don't always think about. So I can tell, and I've heard you both speak about the book, there was so much thought into these different pieces of how you would tell the story. So although the, the young kids maybe don't need to hear about this, for our listeners, if you want to share more about some of those choices around how to tell the story. And also there's mention that the Wampanoag population had, that a lot of people had died. I forget exactly how you put it, but that they had lost a lot of their people two winters before. And there's mention of the day of mourning. So I'm curious about your thought process around including those and what what you hope might unfold for young children in in hearing of those things early on. And also, as you're mentioning, Tony, for the, the older people in their lives. Yes, I, I can speak to that. In the book, we did talk about the people being lost before early in when it's which it, it's basically a story between a story. So we have the grandmother talking to her children and the children want to know the story of the first Thanksgiving and it switches to Weachman being the main narrator. And it, when it switches after that, the story turns to Weachman knowing that the humans who had taken care of her had, they disappeared because there was a couple of pandemics before that, that killed people before the pilgrims arrived. And then again, at the end, when it switches back to the grandmother telling her story to her grandchildren, that uh, some people call it Thanksgiving, and but we call it a day of mourning. And we tried to kind of gently insert it into the story so that readers and their parents and their librarians and generations before who might not have it their first introduction to Thanksgiving, because we have to remember the people who are used to Thanksgiving, who are older generations, they love their tradition. So how do you change people's minds about something that's ideology, that's ingrained into them? You have to kind of give them some tippy-toe steps into changing it. So that's what we did with those insertions in the story, hoping that uh, that introduction would be a way for young children to be opened up to learning about it going into the future. And then for the older readers for whom it will be more difficult to change the way they think for them to accept that. 
And I think in the way, in the least, it's about learning about it and, and, and recognizing, hopefully accepting it. But uh, I think in the very least, it's about realizing that there was a cost to their benefit uh, that they likely had no idea uh, had even happened. Um, I mean, I visited the uh, city of Plymouth in England just a few months ago. And you can still see at the point where, or kind of a commemoration of the point where the pilgrims left on the Mayflower and there are signs and plaques commemorating them. Uh, and even little more modern signs around the city saying, oh, did you know that, uh, I don't know, is it four US presidents were descendants and so forth, you know? And that's the sort of thing that I think gets embedded. There, there wasn't anything of, oh, did you know that this, voyage ended up obliterating entire peoples or, or or anything like that it's just on the on the one side so i think in terms of at least being able to recognize uh that there was a cost and hopefully starting some bigger conversations um and i think it's maybe even starts thinking about well how to take it forward uh, i think as, as alexis says people are not going to easily change their minds but i think that it can still happen uh i think it's still it's it's more about framing it's not saying well you can't have turkey anymore you can't spend time with your family anymore but it is recognizing that the story behind the turkey uh, and the spending the time in your family might need a slightly different perspective and i don't think those are uh, i don't think those are mutually exclusive you can make these changes and still keep to some of the traditions that you hold dear. Absolutely. And the the way that you're sharing it in this book, it, there is so much about feeding one another, about interconnection and gratitude for the plants that feed us and the, the animals that feed us. Maybe not so directly since we're more focused on corn beans and squash, but my daughter noticed the illustration at the end where a Wampanoag man is coming with a deer over his back. And yeah, that we that we can frame this, especially for young kids, as being about harvest and nourishment and sharing and taking care of one another. I feel like that that makes a lot of sense to me anyway, to bring that to our family Thanksgiving table. And Alexis, I think you probably have a lot to say on this. You've written multiple articles about it, and I'll be linking to all of those in the show notes. But if you have a couple of things you might want to share with listeners about how we might decolonize or indigenize our Thanksgiving and things people might want to have in mind or explore doing with their meals. Oh, definitely. Well, we're already on a good pace because we already eat turkey in the U.S., for Thanksgiving and it's a North American bird. And I live in a neighborhood with multiple wild turkeys and they look like living dinosaurs walking around. They do. So um, I would like to ask people to look at the turkey they're buying and try to find out where the turkey's coming from. Is it coming from a, a factory farm where the turkeys live a horrible life or is it coming from a free range farm? where the turkeys can run around and be actual turkeys. And I just think about the lives of those birds and I never buy meat that 
well, I mean, I would prefer subsistence meat like wild deer and wild fish that I've always caught my whole life. I don't participate in that economy and I don't think anybody should. I, I am respectful that it is expensive for some people to do that. But um, even if it is expensive, maybe not eat those GMO farms, <laughs> those giant factory farms food and look towards serving food that's more local to your economy, go to your local farmer's markets. Even if you can't afford it, a lot of them accept SNAP. And that's just basically it. And then um, if you're going around the table being thankful to think about the earlier story of why we're here, look, do your ancestor work if you can, think about where your family came from and that we're all here together. Beautiful and very doable. Um, I think that most of us do have access in some way to seek out, at least as local as possible, the food that we're feasting on and to feel connected to where it's coming from. Do you have something to add, Tony? Yeah, I would I'd absolutely agree with that. And I think one thing that I would say is that certainly what I have seen here in the UK uh, is that there is a more concerted effort to have local food. So even when we go into our uh, larger supermarkets, right, um, you can still see advertisements for, ah, this, uh, I don't know, this beef or, or this milk was, you know, raised within this county, uh, these fruit and veg, or just like, I don't know, a few miles away, that sort of thing. So there is a an emphasis here, uh, even again, in our, our most widespread uh, of stores of local options. Uh, and also there's a big interest, I think, in terms of free range, for example, rather than the, I forgot what Alexis called it, but the higher intensity farming. Uh, and I think it can create a cycle, really, a positive cycle in the sense that when the public are informed about it or see the benefits, then they, they will start to uh, move towards that uh, when there's an option or at least calling for it. And then I think it comes down to uh, farmers and distributors and others trying to innovate in a way of delivering those better standards uh, whilst keeping costs relatively low as well. Uh, of course, it's harder to do that when you're the only one or you're just starting out. But when there's enough of an interest and enough of a push, then I think it can be done and done in a way that can lower lower the costs uh, to where things are more or less. I think the other step to that is about setting standards um, in terms of what, what kinds of food are acceptable to people. So certainly over here, there are real concerns, I think, in terms of using some of the or importing in some of the standards that are, well, frankly, more commonplace in the US, bleaching chickens, that sort of thing, uh, or hormone injected beef, that sort of thing, that there are real concerns. And I think that when those types of concerns 
reach enough people. That helps preserve and improve food standards. Um, and ultimately, I think it does come back to having that awareness and appreciation for where food comes from, the hard work that comes with uh, with planting and raising and and harvesting it, uh, or or even the foods that we that we make from that. Right. So I think it's certainly possible to make these improvements, but it takes greater public awareness to make that happen. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I'm hearing so many intertwining issues as you speak about this. You both mentioned the ways that higher quality food, meat from animals who lived better lives can be more expensive. And this came up at the beginning of our conversation where people are struggling to make ends meet. And I this is not directly related to the book, but I think both of you might have something to reflect on this, that we have a, a false divide between taking care of people and having affordable food and the the ways that the environmental movement, maybe more in the 80s and 90s, but even now sort of felt like, oh, well, it's either these birds in the forest or the loggers' livelihoods. And it's either we care about animals and we demand that our food be at a certain standard or we keep food accessible. And it's just a privileged thing to be able to eat really good food. And I don't believe that that's how things divide. And I know in the way that you've been speaking and coming back to the Thanksgiving story and the Kipunamuk story about that interconnectedness, Alexis, you brought this up at the very beginning, how disconnected we can feel from our food. Do you have any perspective on viewing ourselves in connection with our food and not having that separation around cost and quality and it's for some people and not other people? If you want to reflect on anything related to those themes. So the easiest thing to do, which might not feel so easy if you live in an apartment or you don't have a backyard, is to start growing your own food in your yard. And we've been doing that for a few years in my house. And when I grew up, we did have a garden. And also, I'm very sensitive to the fact that uh, my Arctic ancestors we were not agriculturalists. We didn't grow food. We harvested food when the season was right. So it's really about people trying to try to connect wherever they are to grow food at least and or go to your local farmer's markets. And I'm reading a really good book right now that's kind of recent, written by Priya Fielding Singh. It's called How the Other Half Eats. And it talks about things like food deserts. And there are some myths around food, food deserts in urban areas that people just choose to eat a certain way. But she kind of blasts those myths and looks at how even parents, especially parents like me and Tony and you, with our busy lives, we kind of at some point lean into what our kids want to eat and the whole consumerism industry leads us away from fresh and healthy and locally grown foods so mm -hmm. i think the call absolutely is to not even give in to giving those kids those things even though it's a convenience we need to go back to what our grandparents and great-grandparents did and just feed kids what they have. And I know for myself, like, you know, when you're in a village 
you just get the food you get and you eat it. If it's muck duck, if it's whale, whatever, you chew it up and it's yummy. And I remember as a small child being really picky growing up in our society and I would never eat the fat off anything. And I remember my grandma, she would always be like, why are you not eating the fat? She would, she would eat that fat. <laughs> not a fat person. She would eat the fat off any kind of food that we throw away. Why are we throwing that away? And why are we fat? Because of GMO food, the chemically enhanced food that we shouldn't be eating. We just need to eat food straight from the earth and we'll be healthy. I could not agree more with that, as Alexis pointed out, just when you start juggling with work and family and everything else, uh, the idea of taking time to stop and actually how do you prepare, you know, how do you cut your cucumbers or whatever else that you're you're doing to actually make a meal how do you do that when you've got kids you've just got home from school uh they've got their homework you've got other work to do still and obviously trying to get ready to get them ready for bed and another day at school uh i will say that i i have seen some positive signs uh where there are companies out there that are that are innovating and making some of this food more accessible. Uh, certainly here, you, you can order meals on, that are delivered basically to you or the ingredients that are basically pre-packaged and pre-arranged in the right amounts. Uh, so you're not wasting as much food uh, and it's done in a way that makes it easier for you to actually do the, that kind of preparation meals within like 20 minutes or so, that sort of thing. So I think that there are some signs of, of hope, but it's really, really hard. Uh, I love the idea, um, Alexa's idea of being able to plant food in, in her garden. And we have an allotment. Uh, we just got it a few months ago. Uh, so we're working in that now. And I will say the interesting thing that I had not appreciated was it's not just about preparing the ground but it's about keeping it prepared and fighting against weeds and that sort of thing. So uh, whilst you're trying to prepare it for what you do want to plant, it's an ongoing fight that I hadn't really appreciated. Uh, but being able to share that with, with the kids, um, and, and I'm planning next year to make a Three Sisters Garden. And so teaching that to my kids as foods that uh, their ancestors uh, had raised. It was the way that they lived life. Uh, so I want to share that with them as a connection uh, that they can do, not only with the world around them, but also connecting to their Chickasaw culture, family, and, and our ancestors, wherever they may be in the world today. Very cool. That's wonderful. Alexis, were you going to add something? Yes, I'm going to have to um, just make a point in addition that people can order those foods that many people can't afford to order those kinds of meal packages. So what I'm really thinking about is like our urban Indian communities on the West Coast, where it's like ordering some kind, Tony and I are middle class, we've scraped and fought our way up to that, <laughs> but a lot of our friends and family are not. So 
we can't order some kind of milk package and even ordering it, what's carbon footprint on that? Mm -hmm. Even if you're living in an apartment building, you don't have the space to build that. But there are a lot of efforts in communities. And I can only speak to San Francisco and Seattle right now, because those are my urban Indian communities that I'm most closely connected to. There are a bunch of organizations that have acquired land back and or been able to do local farms and they redistribute healthy food back to the families. But that's NGO work and it should be the work of the government to take care of all of our citizens, native or non-native, so that people who are in urban areas are able to access healthy food. And that's why I, again, suggested reading of the book, How the Other Half Eats, because it blows apart some of the misconceptions around food deserts and how parents choose to feed their kids in cities. Great. Thank you. I'm going to check out the book and I'll also uh, link to that in the show notes. And I think it's like you said earlier, this going back to or re remembering to eat whatever you have to eat that is in season and, and is local and your family has access to. I think there should be a certain standard that no matter what kind of food we have access to, it's not toxic or factory farmed and, and has a, a legacy of cruelty. I think there, there should be right. a baseline for what we all have access to, but I really hear you on, I hear both of you on this, you know, we're busy. I'm a busy parent as well. And, you know, I think about trying to drop tiny hidden bits of kale into my daughter's grilled cheese, you know, and like just wanting to give her some nutrition, but also, you know, going with the tide of social norms is so powerful you know, and trying to, to do something different is challenging with kids and for adults. Well, Tony, Tony really hit the nail on the head when he said we've moved from a society where one parent under patriarchy, the male would work and the woman should stay home. Totally don't agree with that. But I do think that we should have a society where one person at least should be freed up to take care of children and their needs and make things from scratch. Yes, exactly. And, and just to be clear, when I made that point, it was not trying to oh, no, go I back didn't take some it. I didn't era. take it that way. No, no, <laughs> I didn't take it that way. I mean, I it purely as you got a team of people, two exactly. people, right? They have a heading a family. One, it should really only take one in order to try to make ends meet. Now, whether that means both people are working in full time and living out their purpose and whatever that looks like, that's great. Or if they're able to kind of split work, even both working half time or just one working, whatever works right. for them. But it's not meaning that both have to work full time to no end being and not being able to breathe, well, right? Just to be able to make ends meet. The interesting thing about it is that we have enough global GDP to make that happen now, but you would think. it's not given extreme late capitalism, which mm -hmm. is for another podcast. <laughs> we could keep yes. going on this. Absolutely. Oh, um, indeed. Before we have to wrap up and thank you so much for making the time. I know that as we're saying, you're both very busy before we wrap up. I want to circle back to what you said when you about why you wrote this book and all three of you, all three of the co-authors, you two and Danielle, hearing the story of Thanksgiving and feeling othered by it. 
And you're talking, Alexis, about some of these urban native communities. And I think, you know, I grew up in a very mainstream U.S. public school system. And I think I primarily learned about the California Indians because that's where I grew up as a, you know, uh, historical subject, not a present day people that I would want to know and understand. And so if I think what I really want to ask you for our time together is to talk to us about the children in Native communities who you're hoping to tell a more inclusive story for and maybe about for yourselves as well, what you might have liked as children. Alexis? So for me, when I was growing up, Thanksgiving was very much a story about uh, pilgrims and Indians, and it was East Coast, and I grew up on the West Coast. And that was the first place, probably one of the first instances in which I'd learned stereotypes about American Indians. And I was growing up in an Alaska Native family, and what I had learned from Thanksgiving was just very different. I, I didn't even realize that American Indians grew crops, actually, because our community was subsistence hunting and fishing. But you could see in all the activities that they did in school, like when they had kids dress up for Thanksgiving, wearing headdresses or this or that, it was just very stereotypical and othering. And I knew I was a part of that group but I wasn't really a part of that group because I was from Alaska. And um, really what it did was center the, uh, the whole Thanksgiving narrative that's been told to children is to center the idea of settler colonization to the U.S. and what was their problems and what were what was the pilgrims' problems and what were they going through. And it never centered, you've never heard, you've never heard the Thanksgiving story as, okay, we lived here and then these people came here and we had to help them. You've never heard it that way. Mm -hmm. So in writing Kipunamuk, we really wanted to start to create a way for any children who hears it, especially if they're native, not to feel like they're the othered one. And any child, regardless of whether they're from recent immigrants or they've had family here who are settlers for several generations or whether they're native just to feel that it's it's an even keel story that tells the story of what happened and that was a very specific rhetorical choice because race and ethnicity is a social construction it doesn't exist unless it's in people's minds and then they behave off of that so if we combat that social construction from an early age then these children from all different backgrounds can relate to each other without getting, without being preceded, basically racism. Yes. Thank you for that. And I think for me, I was just, I was reflecting a bit on that. And growing up in Oklahoma, there's, uh, you know, it's uh, Oklahoma is a very funny state in the sense that it's geographically in the Midwest, but from a Native American point of view, we have, you know, tribes that have been well deported there from primarily the uh, what's now the the American Southeast, but also from other parts of of the country as well, and so. 
I guess when I grew up, Thanksgiving kind of had two different layers to it. One was this idea of the the American story. So it tied into when I was also learning about George Washington and the Declaration of Independence and all of these things to the idea of America as a country. Those things tied in very closely together. But also there was this element, again, that again, I just could not relate to, uh, my, you know, on top of the Thanksgiving narrative, there are so many schools in Oklahoma even today uh, that call themselves Indians or even Redskins, if I may. Uh, there was a school just recently uh, in Tulsa that changed its name from that. Uh, and all of this is commonplace. You can see these Indian heads, so to speak, on water towers in towns across Oklahoma. And I couldn't really relate to any of that. I went to a school called the Indians. And so it all kind of just came together. And it's like, it's, it's, it's a weird othering in the sense that you are there. You're supposed to somehow be like this, whatever this is, and, and connect to it. Uh, and I, I really struggled with that one. And so for me, I hope for Kipunamok, and I would say with, and I would say actually the writings, both I think Alexis and, and I, and also Danielle uh, are doing more widely and have done, uh, goes for a similar idea of making children, particularly Native American children, proud of being Native. And hopefully raising questions to their families and, and learning more about their own cultures if they don't already have that growing up. So I, I hope it leaves them with a positive impression for them and a sense of pride. Uh, so that's kind of for me where it would, would be. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you both so, so very much for your time and all those reflections. There's lots we could we could carry on for another episode about so many of the things you've said before we close up is there any final things that we haven't covered that either of you want to share well for me it would be a shameless plug of kiponamok yes please to have every kid and and the book was kid tested we read it with all our kids when we were writing it Great. Yeah. So I've already gotten a copy for my cousin, who's a teacher and our local elementary school and my kids old elementary school. So we'll keep plugging the book. There'll be a link in the show notes so you can order it for your family and your school. Yeah. Um, in the spirit of Joanna Macy, Bioneers, the Bioneers Conference, it has moved to the spring and it's going to be in Berkeley, April 6th through 9th next year. And Everybody should show up because it's going to be an amazing conference. I'm sure it is. Link's coming for that, too. I hope to be there. How about you, Tony? Uh, I will just have one more plug, if I may. Yes. Uh, that we have a website for Kapanamak that gives an update, kind of a story, an overview of the story itself, updates in terms of where we are in terms of events, and also curriculum materials. Uh, these were developed in partnership with Bioneers, and actually Alexis and Danielle have done the bulk of, of getting those off the ground with their extensive expertise and work in this area. Uh, and so these are designed 
designed, particularly around Kipunamuk, there are resources designed for uh, primary school students. So as we said, about the same age group as those reading Kipunamuk, but there are wider resources as well to help with schools, uh, including parents or, or uh, carers who are homeschooling children to support that as well. So just to point that out, that this is part of a wider conversation. It's not just about one single book. And um, yeah, so and we look forward to seeing how all of that, those conversations take shape. Yes, those curriculum resources are fantastic. And there's some for high school as well that get into much more depth about all of these things. So look That's for right. those. And thank you again, Tony. Thank you, Alexis, for your book and your incredible work in the world and for your time having this conversation with me. Thank, thank you. you for the opportunity. And thank you for listening. Please do come to the show notes at turningseason.com slash episode 23 to find links to order Kipunamuk for your home, maybe for your local school or library, links to one of Alexis's articles about decolonizing Thanksgiving and her new podcast, Indigeneity Conversations, Tony's historical novel called Chula the Fox, also a speech written in 1970 by Frank James, a Wampanoag man intended to be delivered at the 350th anniversary of the Pilgrim's arrival in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And for anyone interested in working with me, you will also find a link in the show notes to join Healing Season, Practical Wisdom from Chinese Medicine and Deep Ecology, a 12-week online small group journey I will be hosting next in January 2023. For people who are looking to get back in balance and clear stagnation, who understand that our emotions, our stress, and our physical health are connected, and would love to learn from Chinese medicine's deep body of wisdom and practical healing tools, and of course, from Deep Ecology, which recognizes our emotions as a key part of the feedback loops in this whole system called Life on Earth. I would love to collaborate with you in your journey as you rise to your unique role in the great turning in a way that feels good to you and feels like the sometimes elusive enough. We do Qigong together and practices from the work that reconnects, and it has consistently been a deeply nourishing and healing journey for past participants. Come check that out through the show notes at turningseason.com slash episode 23. I'll be back on the new moon with a news episode. Until then, thank you again for listening and for all the ways you play your part.